Hey guys, coming soon, producer Mike Downing will be interviewing on the podcast. His film, The Last Whistle, will be on Netflix starting October 26th, starring Brad Leland from Friday Night Lights, Jim O'Hare from Parks and Rec, and Les Miles himself. It's perfect for the whole family. After a star player dies during his football practice, his coach's career and reputation are on the line as he refuses to quit his win-at-all-cost style. Get ready for his emotional Netflix movie, The Last Whistle, October 26th, coming soon. Lastly, I'd like to welcome the Thrivers. What is a Thriver, you ask? If you're a Thriver, it means you're a fan of this show. That's right. While you're all Thrivers in my heart, there's a more official way to become one. If you catch my drift, go to www.patreon.com slash Mr. Thrive to become a patron to this exciting opportunity for exclusive content, live updates, experimental media, insights, and more, all to keep you more in the action. Become a Thriver today at patreon.com slash mrthrive. Enjoy the show. You have stumbled upon Stars of Tomorrow, where every Friday I, Mr. Thrive, interview someone like producer Mike Downing, who has not yet been discovered. This up-and-coming podcast talks with the up-and-coming. Mike, thanks you, thank you for joining me on the show today, man. Thank you for having me, Chess. Yeah, no, you're uh, an incredibly talented producer. Aww. Your reputation precedes itself all the time with all the work that you've kind of like just simply touched, like even if you've just simply giving advice, I think it, it, it proceeds to uh, to uh, help a lot of different other filmmakers produce their films as well. And that's why I wanted you on the show, because I feel like having you can not only uh, act as uh, a great bit of content for myself, but also be a lesson in uh, financing for films and, cr- bring, and molding them to where they need to be. A hundred percent. Like, I think that's the thing I enjoy most about producing is like your job is to help people achieve the goal. And during the wait, you have to learn yourself, like how to get to that goal. So I learned just like the more I try to just put myself out there to help other people, the more I learn myself. Totally. Before we, before we get into that, uh, you have a film coming out and you are actually the cause for all these sponsorships lately. Yes. For I the podcast. <laughs> uh, if you guys listen, listen to the last episode, you probably have heard then, uh, the uh, advertisement that I made uh, for Mike Downing here for The Last Whistle. Mike, go ahead and tell them about Last Whistle. Great. So Last Whistle is an absolutely incredible film made by a bunch of USC students and also TCU people. We filmed all in Texas in a 13-day straight kind of thing. Really up-and-coming, strapping, coming story thing. We started development in August 2017, and now we're going to be on Netflix in one week, which is incredible to me going for it. So October 26th is our Netflix release date, and it was just so incredible, just like pushing forward everyone giving their all kind of thing just coming together to create such a cool story and totally from the grounds up everyone just putting in a thousand mistakes made across the way from (laughs) everyone Uh, like 90 999 those are mine but still it was just like a great experience all the way through just to really know like this is how you can make a movie and like become a family with a crew i mean oh yeah that that family aspect is really what makes uh, a film whole i will say uh, I, I especially got that when I was working on the Lifetime TV movies. When I first met you, uh, we were working on uh, survival skills. And that was uh, a really great uh, family coming together experience. I just, I really felt connected to everybody on that set. Just as, just as, just as a boom operator. 
Yeah, that was a crazy thing, too, because the way survival skills worked was Last Whistle is my first complete feature I produced. But survival skills was a feature that started filming in March 2018. And then we had to go on a hiatus because one of our main stars had to go off to Poland for a little bit. His whole schedule got conflicted. So we started filming in March. We didn't finish the film and the shoot till September. So in June, July, I filmed Last Whistle from start to finish there. So it was weird. It was like every time I got like a little bit of bump because like I'm not in post yet. I'm not in pre-production. I'm not in production. And just like juggling between and seeing how two different films like came together and learning from both and like trying to be the go-to guy. Is, that the, is that the most number of times that you've actually produced something at, at, at a time? Or, or how, many, how many things have you, like what's the most you've worked on at, at a time before? I would say the craziest thing was right after I produced my first big thing at USC, which was this crazy class for like sophomore year when I really got into producing, there was this thing called um, the producing practicum and um, the production experience. So this was a weird uh, constructed like modified class where even if you're not a production student, you just come in and you can start being on set. And they give you $30,000 to make a TV pilot, which is insane. What? And the thing is like, the first three weeks were just interviewing with professors about duties. And I really like didn't know what I want to be. I just, you know, like stories. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go up to this dude and say, I want to produce. Like I came in like kind of in like half a suit kind of thing. And everyone else is just like in their baseball caps. And like I had my resume and all this. He's like, look at this, like, this is blank. I'm like, yeah, I know I'm a sophomore. <laughs> he was kind of like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to produce. The next 30 minutes, he just talked about random stories about producing. And I just nodded. And he's like, Okay, we done? And I'm like, guess, dude. So I wow. left. And I'm like, okay, I don't, I didn't get this. He just wanted to use up the 30 minutes. And then in class, they're like, oh, Mike Downing's a producer, by the way. I'm like, what? <laughs> I did nothing to like show I had the skills for this. <laughs> oh, so I got that. That was crazy. And then um, from there, I did a VR grant at USC. And during while we were shooting the VR grant. I also got brought on by my producing partner, Nick Benjamin, to come co-produce this short call Under Darkness, which is Sloan Grant kind of thing. I can get more into the specifics, but it's like, literally, like, while we were shooting this, I started pre-production on that. And then while that was, like, wrapping up, I also got another thesis. So there was, like, a solid, like, stretch from, like, January 2017 to August 2017, where I was producing nonstop. And I remember this, I literally had a week in between August 17, August 2017, to when Rob Smat, the director of Last Whistle, reached out to me and be like, hey, I got this feature. So <laughs> I had a week off. I'm like, okay, I'm done producing, gonna be done with all of it. And then I have like a feature lying in my lap. I'm like, okay, I'm back at it. Wow. I mean, that, that's crazy. How do you not get buried in all those details, that, all the details and the fine, uh, even the individuals that, that you have to like manage through? I think it all comes down to just like one level of responsibility being like this director or this creator, or this writer has put so much trust in you to like really help their vision get made and all the other crew members have come together too. So it's really just like one, it's stress, just like keeping the adrenaline going. And two, it's like, I'm a very insecure person a thousand percent of the way. And part of it is like, I really just don't want to let people down. So I almost use it as a tool in the sense where like, okay, I got to keep going out there and like doing my best for these people kind of thing, which is why I think I really fell into producing because your job is to care for everyone right. and make sure they're all like at their best ability, which I think is just like why I really like found my place in this role. That's awesome that you took your insecurity and instead of letting it dominate you, you turned it into something productive. 
Um, I mean, how do you get to that point of taking something as vulnerable as that and, and, and turning it against itself like that? There was one really cool moment that I always remember. It was on that third war of the TV pilot. One of my first jobs was to hire a makeup artist. And I really had no idea. Like, how do you go about hiring someone? How do you get, like, qualifications? And, like, I was going through stuff and, like, people were giving me phone numbers. And something I'm also really scared of is my sound of my voice, which is why right now I'm listening to it. I'm like, oh, that's that little thing there. <laughs> and um, Very I, it came to the point where, like, I had to call people and be like, hey, do you want this job? And... And, like, I was, like, shivering. Like, I was completely petrified. Really? And I remember pacing back and forth for 40 minutes just practicing what I was going to say. And then eventually, like, I picked up the phone. And, like, the first words out of my mouth, like, hi, I'm a producer from USC. And I don't know what happened. But just, like, that phrase right there, the click of, like, I'm a producer from USC, one of the greatest film schools in the world. Right. And that was just such an immediate confidence boost. It's like, hey, I'm in this like powerful role almost kind of thing. Like yeah. this is a position of power and like, it just gave me such a new way of life almost just like wandering around like, Hey, I have this incredible f- project that I'm really passionate about too. We have a great team behind us and we're just really looking for help. Like here's some money. This is what we're looking for. And they were completely receptive to it. And we just all came together that way. So I think it was, again, it's like one, I was just desperate to prove myself and two, when you're actually just diving in the deep end, it's sink or swim. So you just have to, like, swim for your life to get above it all. Well, good for you. So do you think that if you went to a different school, you would have that level of confidence? Or was USC, is USC really that crown jewel? USC was always my first choice. Like, that, uh, my program is business and cinema. So one, USC is the only school that really offers that in, like, such an in-depth way kind of thing. Two, it was the one program where, like, I never knew a different school that could give you such a high-stakes, like, program and give it to someone so inexperienced. Like, that was complete luck of the draw for me, 100%. Like, it, that's not even a USC thing. That was me just, like, I try to give people, like, advice, but it's so hard to recreate. And I swore after I did that, they became much more strict. Like, I, I don't think I messed up that bad, but they're <laughs> like, you can't have... Also, I should mention, this class was for undergraduates and graduates, so I was 19, and, like, the showrunner, the directors, the editors, they're all, like, 28 to 30 kind of range there. Right. And, like, I was, like, the producer. Did they know your age going into that? They knew I was young. They knew... I don't think they knew exactly how young I was. I'm pretty sure most of them thought I was a grad student, too. Right. It's also helped that, like, I hit puberty like a train. Like, I've always had, like, a massive, like, beard wherever I let go. I I was, like, a bass in, in middle school, so like, choir. So what yeah. you're saying is, is if you were clean-shaven, you'd be nothing. I really tried guys. not to shave on set so I look older. Really? That's, like, a big, like... It's the appearance that comes with that, that has to meet the power, is what you're saying? hundred percent. Like, one, like, I try to wear button-up shirts on set, even if it's a hundred degrees outside, just because, like, you need that look. One of my, um, one of my very close mentors, Rebecca Doyle, I remember I PA'd for the first thing I ever did freshman year on her set, and she wore a complete suit, and I've never seen another producer at USC do this. 
kind of thing. And I thought, oh, that's the normal thing. She like she pulled me aside. She taught me all these cool producing tricks all the way through. But she was wearing a full suit on set, and like everyone else is just like you know in shorts, t-shirts. Director was, other producer was. But like she came like in like a suit kind of thing, and like it was just such like an authoritative move. It's impressive. Yeah, you like listen to her so much. Like oh, she knows what she's doing right there. Right. So like I don't go like full suit because I still want to be like completely approachable like i love hanging out with like the grips and like the soundies and just like joking around too right to like make them comfortable kind of thing but it was like you know really look like you're putting in as much effort as you can which i think is the biggest thing on set too you want to appear as an as the professional not just a professional but the professional but both the professional and both that just like everything's in line like a common phrase is like you're a successful producer if you don't have to do anything on set and I 100% agree with that, too. But I also feel like, but it should also be, like, the second there's one little thing that'll save, like, a nanosecond, you need to be doing it kind of thing. Sure. So, I, like, anything from, like, the second people start wrapping up, you need to rush over and just be grabbing gear. The second, like, no one has any more questions, you need to just be grabbing stuff, moving around kind of thing there. You need to be working with, like, stage manager, making everything's set up there because really every second is like money and it when, really is. especially when you're working with like personal projects with directors that is such a heavy responsibility to be like this person is putting so much of their own like finances years and years of saving yeah. up and they're just entrusting you to make sure it's not wasted like that's such a heavy responsibility to hold totally true you know there's this um there's this assistant director that i worked under when i was uh, just beginning my production assistant days and his name is John Evangelista, really great guy. And he, when he saw the potential in me, that's when he kind of took me under his wing and began to coach me on this volunteer project I was working on. On that project, of course, everyone has heard the expression, time is money, right? Mm-hmm. But he said something that, to me, he gave me a scenario that really stuck with me, okay? It's called the most expensive coffee scenario. Have you ever heard of this? No, I haven't. Explain, please. All right, so you'll love this, okay? I don't know the exact figures here, so all the mathematicians who are listening do not quote me on this. But here's how it works, right? Mike, what's the average, uh, what's the average production money-wise? Like, how much does it cost? Um, let's, assuming that, let's say it takes a month to shoot. So we're talking about a feature. We're talking about a feature film. That's a month to shoot. What's the average money-wise? Uh, I gotta say that, that's just our question from like knowing like above okay. the line. Top let's the line. say um, let's say it's a hundred million. Okay, we're talking about a $100 million feature. Yes, we're talking about a full, a full feature, $100 million feature, right? Okay. There's a director on set, right? And he wants to go into the next shot, but he wants a coffee, right? So what does he do? He calls on the production assistants to get the coffee, right? And what happens is that production assistant who gets the order to get the coffee, he walks on over, takes his time to get that coffee. And also, there's a specific way that that guy likes his coffee. So he's taking his time for putting in the three creams and the two sugars and the uh, extra shot of espresso, whatever it is. It's a process, Mm -hmm. right? And then he walks on. Also, he marks the the coffee mug as well with the director's name on it. Has to have his name spelled correctly, so he name checks himself, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say uh, he he misspells the director's name on that coffee mug, so he has to make the whole coffee again or just put the coffee into another paper cup and then walk it on over right in that time let's say it took 10 minutes right and the coffee decide the the director decided he's not going to progress forward until he gets that coffee 
Yeah, he wasted $5,000. Uh, he wasted a lot of money. And that becomes the most expensive coffee in the entire world. The most expensive coffee in the entire world will not come from that anteater mammal that is able to eat specific beans and then poop out the ones where the guys are following him. That's a side tangent, by the way. That's an actual coffee that exists out there. Where is that they... your new sponsor? <laughs> I wish. I wish. I really want to try this coffee. It's one of my It's one of my uh, life goals is to try this coffee. <laughs> but the most expensive coffee that you will ever find is on a movie set. Even if it's Folger's shitty-ass coffee, uh, that's my... <laughs> That's my degrading uh, ad for Folgers Coffee right there. Uh, it is the most expensive coffee because oh. it'll cost so much money to the production. If you so, so when I heard that for the first time, the moment someone asked for anything, you bet your ass, if you're on that set with me, you saw me sprinting down the, down the fields. If someone asked, for, like, this, like this actress asked for eye drops, and the eye drops were in her purse offset back at the base camp. So what did I do? I sprint, I sprint all the way to base camp, grabbed her eye drops in her purse, sprint all the way back, wasted two minutes. But those two minutes could have been easily five minutes, ten minutes. Mm -hmm. It could have cost the production a lot of time. My hat flew off in that sprint, and it was so worth it. It cost the production money. It saved the production money. And that's what I learned. The most expensive coffee uh, uh, theory, we'll call it the theory, the most expensive coffee theory mm -hmm. you know and that changed that changed my outlook on film and so i i have a lot of respect for people who have to manage that that timing aspect and that and how it how it relates to money that time to to money relationship is so crucial to creating a successful film and it seems like with the experience they've gotten as a grad student specifically focusing on the business aspect of film uh you've saved a lot you've you've done a lot you've you've probably made or break some films you know yeah I will, I will say there's only one project i've ever been on that went over budget what, what was that um that was a music video i did once so it wasn't horrific in that sense but um there it was just you know lack of resources not being adequately prepared not having enough meetings beforehand so i think it all comes to the point where like you just need to talk with everyone before everything happens because like it's free like it's not free but like if it's better to spend twenty dollars hanging out with the department heads for six hours to have a production meeting rather than being on set and like trying to figure out stuff and like wasting thousand dollars a minute oh yeah yeah and I, I the the producing experience is a learning experience ultimately and that's that's what I've gotten from the from the minimal amount of producing that I've done when I produced my thesis the, there's I think the two major things I learned when I produced my thesis in college was the first thing is that art that film is the art of asking for help <laughs> that's the first thing and the second part is uh it's the toughest job on the field it really is it there's so many moving parts and i've talked about like on that thesis like the little mini heart attacks i had uh not actually but like leading up to that and i'm sure you've experienced that the whole time <laughs> oh like I i'm gonna die when i'm like 35 just because my heart's like i have gray hairs i'm 22 <laughs> i don't know if you can see this but you know I what i totally can see no, i i wouldn't I have noticed it if you pointed it wow before i started producing i don't know if it's a coincidence but like there's some signs <laughs> sure yeah where where'd you get that what, like what, what would you say is like the most uh, annoyingly stressful thing that you have to put up that there's just no solution for yet that's a really good question. Um, I think it gets to the fact where um, 
one, there's such a weird divide between above the line and below the line mm-hmm. when you're working with people, because if there is times where I just need to like stop something and make sure like, oh, all this paperwork is in order kind of thing there. That's usually a me fault because like I haven't prepared this paperwork ahead of time. And while I'm like there just like scribbling around trying to get all this legal stuff in order there, like I could be on set saving money, all that. And it's like a weird thing because like on like if I was on much bigger sets, it'd be like, okay, I have my PAs running around, coordinators, everyone, line producers, UPMs, just handling all that stuff. But because at these such small levels, you're everything from a PA to head of legal to head of development to head of production right. kind of thing. Just making sure everything is above board along the line. That's where it gets difficult sure. kind of thing. It's like one, that's why I love it because I get to touch every aspect, get to be involved in both the creative process and the logistics process from start to beginning, which I love because the UO, that's always a learning experience. But at the same time, it's like, you really can't give yourself 100% to every goal. So I think it's just like not being in every place at once. Oh, definitely. Uh, and delegating is kind of what you're, you're getting at here. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing I learned was Last Whistle was great because that was the first time I had like an actual like PA team. And it was so weird because the first like five days... I still really didn't know what to do with this main PAs. We had like how many f- PAs? We had like have? five to six each day. Okay, which was wonderful. They were all fantastic. I would work with all of them again in a second. Um, but I was just remember this one point. Like I was spending at least like two to f- maybe three or four hours a day on set, just like handling paperwork and all this, like even just scanning stuff. And then there was like one second, where like one of the PAs came and was like, "Hey, Anthony, help with the mic." could you literally just scan these documents for me? (laughs) And he's like, yeah. So I gave him my phone and I had this app just like scan stuff. And like, I went away, I was on set. I could actually watch takes. It was great. But then I came back. I was like, Hey, how'd the scanning go? He's like, well, I haven't got one done yet. I'm like, what? And it was like, the the app on the phone was weird. It like, it would scan it, but it would come up really blurry. But if you just tap it, it'd be crystal clear. Oh, so he like, just kept trying to rescan this one. Wait, so did he scan the same piece of <laughs> yeah, paper? Yeah, he scanned like... it probably like 40 times while I was away <laughs> doing stuff. And then I was like, no, it's perfect. You just have to save it. He's like, oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, I mean, one, that, that, that taught me two things. It's like, one, it is important to delegate. So you have the time to be around floating, making sure there's other problems. But also you do just need to take like the five seconds it takes to make sure like people understand their jobs and they're there for them and that they're not afraid to ask you questions, which I think any like leadership role you need to be prepared for. Oh, definitely. And I've been in situations too where I'm, I I genuinely was worried to ask questions because of the, the way that someone would, would react. And I think now I wouldn't be as scared too. But, but back then, you know, you are working with people's emotions and mm-hmm. I think that's actually the biggest thing on set that people have to uh, learn about, especially producers. They have to deal with so, – you guys have to deal with so many uh, minute aspects of personalities and, and manage through them just to really – I mean, the goal is to produce a film. It's not to be a psychologist, but in a certain aspect, you are you do have to be a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily, necessarily fair to you guys, but that does come – with the package, doesn't it? Yeah, I would say even there, like, set isn't the hardest part of that. Because for the most part on the sets I've worked with, everyone just has so much adrenaline pumping through them the whole time. That, yeah. like, yeah, okay, we're going, we're going, we're working through this. Like, we're putting all our needs aside to, like, just get this out the door kind of thing. Then we'll go out for drinks later. Um, <laughs> yeah. But a big harp thing is just development and pre-production. Just making sure everyone's 
on the same board. Like it's either are we on a set where the director's vision is lock and key and like everyone just needs to like obey every single step or are we on a set where it's like here's the general outline let's everyone just go creative go on that i'm not saying either side is like good or wrong but that's just such a hard thing because as a producer your job is usually be like either you're hiring the people and then putting them away with the director and the director's like molding them into whatever or the director's are like yeah here's the script give it to them and like go with that <laughs> and I think that's such a hard thing to do, too, is be like, one, you have to balance, like, other people's egos where, like, okay, are they going full out doing this? And also, it was like, I'm completely controlling their creativity because I'm saying this is your budget. Right. I'm saying, like, th- these are the tool set you have to work with right now. And other than that, it's like, it's not really anything you can do with it. Sure. Like, I, I do as much as I can, like, on this one shoot I did with my wardrobe artist, it's like... We put around a lot of stress. Matt, Maddie Bullock, incredibly fantastic. Did wardrobe for Last Whistle, wardrobe for Under Darkness, which is nominated for Academy Award. Congratulations. Like, Thank you. Um, but she does everything. Completely comes out of her budget all the time. But uh, I do, whenever she says she needs help, like I run over there. Like on this one shoot we did, I was her mold. So I had to stand still for like an hour <laughs> or two hours to her to duct tape my body. And then I came over and like spray painted stuff with her for like the silver things. She ended up respanding me because I did such a poor job spray painting because <laughs> I'm not a crafty or an artist at all. But it was still good because it's like that's where you have to learn to like help people and like be with them and be in supportive role. No, definitely. And there's different styles of producing, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the bit, the thing about producing is it's such a big term. Like, whenever I go home, people ask me, so what does a producer do? Uh, and, like, it's either I can break into an hour-long podcast speech about it, or I just be like, <laughs> it's their job to make sure the project is done to the highest quality and seen by the most people. Like, that is their end goal. So you have to do that in either way, which includes like balancing a budget, helping hire the right crew, managing logistics, being creative in the sense to make sure this is something people want to watch. Well said. There. Well said. Yeah. No, I think you definitely cannot sum up your job in, in one sentence. And one thing I admire about the producer's life is that no two days are the same. Oh, 100%. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really, it sounds like. There are some days that gotta be fun. Like being the mold for a costume. Yeah. And other days where you want to pull your hairs out as they're going gray. Mm-hmm. And I gotta commend you for all the work that you've put in because you've been hustling. Thank you. You Thank really you. have. You, I, I think that's great. Where does that hustle come from? Like how did you kind of become an entrepreneur even before this? Because I, I, I can't imagine you just jump into it. Did, did it come naturally or... or, or... I think it was a bit of an early life kind of thing. Um, my dad, so I was born and raised in a small fishing town in Alaska kind of thing there. And my dad was always independent his whole life. He was very gruff fisherman, Alaska guy, big Santa Claus like beard. I've never seen his chin kind of thing there. Wow. He, he built all his own cabins in Alaska kind of thing. Well, and that's like, casual. I, yeah, I'm just like a very skinny guy. I am not like smart. I don't know how to work a hammer, all this kind of stuff there. But <laughs> and like his whole thing was like he was a fisherman. Then I was born and he kind of gave that up for a little bit to be a stay-at-home dad. And during that time, he, like, this is, like, 2000. And he just got this one book on internet design. And he just read the whole book. And the thing is, my whole town and most of Alaska runs on tourism. And because of this, he became literally the only guy in my town and the only guy for, like, 500 miles 
who knew how to build websites. Whoa. So he just like went out, made all these websites for everyone in town because he knew all his fishing buddies. He was like, oh, here's how people can book like their booking through our website. So, so people can do there. It's amazing how one book uh, expanded uh, a community of, of capitalist business. Yeah. So like that's how I kind of saw it too, where I'm like, this is such a cool, interesting thing. And he just, like, dove into it. I'm like, I'm just going to keep diving in and doing everything I can with that. Um, my mom, I get um, more of my supportive nature, I think, too. She spent her whole life in um, the public sector. She was originally a college guidance counselor. Then she went on to be vice president of the school board. Then she went on to run grants for universities. And now she's the head of this foundation company. So her whole thing was, like, just helping education and, like, educating people because really – educating is the best way to build up someone's self and to get them to achieve their dreams kind of thing there. So I really love that because her whole life was just like dedicated, like let's help like these kids from anywhere from like kindergarten out in a remote Russian village to all the way to like in like the biggest universities in Alaska. Like let's just make sure they have the tools they need to go out and learn and experience stuff. And like that really resonate with me a lot too. And that's what I love about producing that sense too where i can come and help all these people come together and achieve their dreams that's pretty amazing yeah congratulations dude i'm i i just i i love hearing the stories about entrepreneurs coming from coming from kind of unexpected places yeah you would think that that someone who has your experience uh would come from like a guy from wall street yeah yeah i, I get that my, my first job was in fish processing which is a nice <laughs> word for a slaughterhouse so for 16 hours a day i would literally stand in one spot pick up a pound of fish put it in a bag so whenever i like just like today um i live pretty close to beverly hills and went for a run with my roommate and we were just like every second i just stopped and be like this is beautiful this is like the nicest place in the world i'm running on a saturday i'm gonna be on a podcast later kind of thing right. so like i'm just always like really grateful for every moment i'm here and i think that's a big thing with producing too because you can never let your ego get ahead of yourself like i will admit there's been plenty of times where like i have been completely blinded with my ego and be like oh i'm a big producer now because i have a film on netflix sure but and then it always comes back to bite me and it's just, like, you have to, like, remember, like, you cannot let that ever control you ever. And just be completely reality check yourself. Good for you for recognizing that. Uh, that's something that sometimes I struggle with, just being the arrogant person that I am. But dialing it back a little bit, do you miss Alaska at all? <laughs> oh, that's a tough question. It's, like, um, I think it's because I really came into myself and I grew my confidence from producing in L.A., there's almost a dependence for me to stay in LA and stay in the film world so I can stay at like that part of myself. When I go back to Alaska, it does feel so weird because I lose like a power trip almost. It's like, I can't talk about all these like kind of people I know and the projects I've been working on kind of thing there. And like, it doesn't really resonate. There's not there. as many people to relate to. Yeah. So that, that would that's be A lot of my friends left too. And when you're in such a small town kind of thing, it's yeah. like hard to, get back into the swing of it all. And it's also like, I was there for 18 years of my life. Right. So, and I am very eager. Like I love going out. So like two days after high school graduation, I went to Europe for seven months and just backpacked with all my fish processing money. <laughs> and then I went to school in Paris there. Um, but that was just the thing. Like I just wanted to keep seeing new stuff and keep pushing myself because I did think I was in a bubble for a lot of my life. Well, I mean, good for you for exploring and, and kind of venturing out. Have, have you and your, your family... Uh, gotten to experience that kind of adventure together a little bit um my mom is very different than my dad where she grew up on the east coast outside dc so we'd see. see east coast stuff um 
I, I don't like traveling too much with my parents. I honestly don't even like traveling with friends. You Sim- travel alone? I really travel alone. Like, um, even the last trip I did, I went to Asia, and I was in Thailand for a week, and then I went and I met some old roommates in Cambodia for another week. And, you know, honestly, I really enjoy just traveling by myself more because it's one, again, it becomes that survival instinct where you're like, okay, what am I doing next? What am I doing next? Other times, if you're with people, it's more like, oh, okay, we have this group. We need to maintain their needs. Yeah, like, for see. some reason, when I was in Thailand, I didn't eat for two days straight, which was weird to me. I wasn't hungry you didn't at all. You eat for two days? It was I the weirdest experience, too. It was like I was drinking a bunch, but I wasn't, really wasn't <laughs> eating. I'm like, why aren't I hungry? But when I went to them, it's like they were sitting down eating three meals a day. I'm like, okay. And it was just like... It's such a good time to be alone, experience yourself. And I do love to write. And there's so many times I just, like, love to sit down somewhere alone and just, like, write my thoughts and all that. One of these days, I would like to save up the money to go on a a trip by myself. I'd probably spend a few weeks. How long did you spend, though? Um, The longest I did was, like, I was in... I went, essentially, from Iceland to Egypt by myself over the course of, like... What I made you, saw it that's such a three. weird I, I gotta say that's such a weird like well it wasn't planned it wasn't planned at all it's like I, I left in Iceland I'll lay over and be like okay I'll be in London I'll do this and then like stuff just kept popping up like I did running of the bulls in Spain because I'm like oh this happens this you week did, you did the running yeah, of the yeah, bulls yeah that was insane dude I got like a 14 hour bus ride from Paris and then the bus <laughs> got delayed so I missed my bus transfer and then I tried hitchhiking at midnight in Spain are you serious <laughs> yeah it was rough and that didn't work out so I ended up having to pay for a hundred dollar taxi oh my God. I was like this is so much money but okay and then I got to I paid for this camp place so they gave me a tent and an air mattress i got two hours of sleep then they set out like these siren alarms to wake you up and then they put you on this bus they gave you like this sash and they just ran you through all the safety guidelines right <laughs> you know they, they're like here's how you don't get killed by a oh that- <laughs> and, yeah and then um i went to egypt by myself too because um that was kind of a dumb reason but i really like the story where um like 40 years ago my dad took this really cool hit picture of him on a horse with the pyramids behind him so i literally went back to egypt to recreate that photo oh wow okay. so yeah i just egypt's great i love that country but like i just said like i really want a horse and like <laughs> i was at an airbnb and they're like I let's get a you horse. a horse and like a horse showed up and they're like okay let's go wait, wait what do you mean it showed up like- i i literally just like briefly said to the host like oh yeah i want to like recreate this photo and get a horse and he's like okay and i'm like cool and then like he's like okay it's ready in five and i'm like and it's just there they're so built around just like getting needs to people like i even said like one time i want to go to the bazaar and already taxi was outside take me and then taxi stopped and this guy opens the door and massive dude and he's like he was in the egyptian air force and he's like hi i'm mohammed i'm your god i'm like i did not order god but great and he just walked me through the bazaar and all that too so that's fun wow I, I, you know, I don't really know much about Egypt besides maybe some of the major politics that have happened around them, but I, I would never expect that. That's such a cool adventure, though. That's yeah. so random. It started from a stupid kind of yearning. Like, not yeah. stupid, but superficial. <laughs> but it actually turned into something really Yeah, it's like I wanted the Instagram likes. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but it was so great because then that's the good thing I love about being alone, too, because it forces you to, like, make actual connections with people, too. Right. Kind of thing there. Well, that's part of why, why I'd be interested in doing it. When I, I traveled for two months with Nick, who you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. your producing partner, no. uh, and, and uh, Josh and a guy, another guy named Dylan. And uh, you know what? Life-changing experience. I think travel is life-changing, but 
you have to be you, you definitely uh di not distort but you must transition into something that you didn't ex that you didn't expect yeah. to come out of you when 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 you're by yourself traveling i could talk about travel for for years you know like i i just love to tra i love i love to travel mm -hmm. that's that's one of my passions is is to, to travel again one of my goals for sure um but now you're here you're hunkered down in la um life is beautiful you're running with your roommate who it sounds like you have a good relationship with yeah yeah he's um um a waiter wine being actor kind of thing so very la yeah sure. kind of thing. but i love him he, he's great he's working hard doing all good um but yeah um Work is, like, weird in L.A. too right now because I've gone through so many different jobs outside of producing, and now I'm on the Paramount lot kind of thing, just, like, floating between shows kind of thing from, like, sure. the finance standpoint. And it's just, like, weird, you know, just always trying to find your path up. Do you like that lifestyle of the kind of the floater life and the back lot of Paramount? The thing I like the most is, like, um, I worked all through college, too. My first internship was in development at a place called Lynn Pictures. They did the Lego movie, Sherlock Holmes. So that taught me like about development, like how you craft a story well. The next one was Illumination, where I learned animation production for Disciple Me 3 and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Really? And yeah, and that's told me all about like 3D animation. Like the craziest thing was like, really how much you're able to market something kind of thing. I remember talking to this marketing guy, I'm like, oh, how much do we have to pay to put like minions on like cereal boxes for advertising? And he's like, no, they pay us a lot of money to put minions on there. I'm like, oh, really? Really? And it was just like, oh, okay, that's cool. Because like just the power of like really cool IP and when you can create that emotional connection with something like that is a monetary asset which I really love going for it. And then um, my next internship was at Sierra Affinity where I did film finance kind of thing. And that really taught me like how a lot of films like come together, how they get their money moving forward there. Then I did um, casting at Amazon Studios. So I helped out on The Boys and Jack Ryan Season 2. And that was more just seeing like how much um, above the line talent and again, how much of a marketing asset actors are and all the considerations you need to take into them. All these little... There things that you've kind of done uh, have this been has this been in the last year or when this, this... is in the last like four years so it would be like i do like an internship for every three months and then like but well like every semester you be and then um yeah then i was at e1 and where i did international sales and distribution for about a year yeah i think there um so that just taught me again like how um more outside studio films can get financing distribution model there and just like how you can actually go Sorry, and like a sense like cell films since there. So that was really cool. And now I'm working on the Paramount lot as an accounting clerk. And that's more just like kind of like a mailroom system where like you work on shows and eventually you'll leave the lot to work on shows too. And then like you work your way up, like again, like learning how to budget films and control that stuff there. So I don't really know what the future holds for me. I would love to keep producing that way too. I still meet with all my creative partners and like we'll see what projects are doing on helping I can. But like, Again, it's like film is just such a slow-moving process all the way forward. It, it really is. And then life kind of, I feel like you blank out when the actual production happens. Like you just kind of go on a blank. Oh, yeah, then, you're on autopilot just like racing for. As soon as you get into post-production, you're like, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you didn't have the job of being a producer, of those small jobs that you kind of just described in the past four years, which one would you take? See, that's the hardest thing of where, where I am in my personal life, too. It's like, I really just want to touch everything. And that's what I love about producing. Like, I, I worked in development. I'm like, okay, this is great. But at the same time, 
um, you're not able to control everything that happens to IP once you put it out into the world. And you have so many pitches coming in. Um, animation production, very cool, very technological kind of thing there, but then you miss out being on a film set. Film finance, it's like, okay, you're helping put together projects and all that, but then you lose that aspect too. Distribution, you're at the tail end. Casting, you're at the beginning end. And um, I'm liking finance quite a bit because that really resonates through every aspect of production too, from like get making sure you have the money to get this project out from development and getting through a way in there. So that's what I'm enjoying more too, and that's more of the planning. But at the same sense, it's like producing, it's like, full equal and unequal balances of creative to business side kind of thing so dude remarkable man um i i you know the that that ambiguity it's kind of been like a little bit of a theme that i've i've heard a lot of lately that it's okay to be ambiguous that's what i've decided is that right now the fact that there is no train track leading to the destination at this time, that it's very much just open road right now, it's going to be okay. And I have, to, I have to remind myself that all the time, you know. Uh, the next step, whatever it's going to be, is going to be great, especially for someone like you. You have a lot of doors to open. It sounds like these opportunities are coming to you, and you're creating these opportunities as well. It's not just luck. Um, someone like you is going to achieve that. So uh, just keep doing what you're doing, man. You're, you're doing incredible. Thank you, but with that, I would 100% just give the warning where, like, it is a double-sided blade. Yeah. Like, I 100% respect people all the way through where, like, you know, oh, I want to do PR for Oscar award-winning films. Like, I want to be the best agent in Hollywood. Okay. And they're able to put in the work, they'll take the entry-level job, they'll work as hard as they can, and they have such a clear vision of what they want to do. A thousand, thousand-time respect for all of that in every way there kind of thing. Right. But, and so that is a weakness when you want to do everything. And I think that's such a hard job to find where, like, you're able to do everything you want to. But did you ever notice that, like, the more higher up and powerful the position is, the, the more ambiguous the road to it gets? Yeah, that, that's... Like, like, that's like you, just mentioned, you just mentioned, like, the, the PR and the agent. And those are all jobs that are acquirable if you go up a certain ladder. Mm-hmm. Right. If you work, if you commit to one company for a while and you stick to it as an assistant, get up, work up to being a personal assistant, work up to, I don't know, let's say a, uh, a publicist, et cetera. I don't really know the exact ladder to being an agent. There's a process that you get to it. Right. Um, but like, like for me myself, I'm a, I, I want to be a director and screenwriter. That yeah. road is so ambiguous. There's no, I mean, for a writer, yeah, you got to write a script. Okay. Done. Now what? Um, from that standpoint, I would say there's multiple avenues to go, but I completely agree. It's like, if you do want to be the boss, that that's like an issue. I think everyone struggles with those. Like, how do you become a CEO? And I've talked to like CEOs of like my companies too, like how you do it. And like, they all say the route kind of thing. Some say BS studio for like 10 years, make your connections. Others say just like go out and keep producing content until like you find the golden gem. Um, I think the only ways you can do that is prepare for luck. It's like make as many connections as you can, network as hard as you can, so that when you do stumble upon something great, whether that's like something you discover, something you create yourself, you're able to get other people's opinions, able to like bring it around, get insight there, kind of thing. And then like if you is the role of being a CEO at a production company, 
you can't be a CEO without employees. Like you need to like have people to rely on and you need to have earned the trust of those people to like come over to your side too. Absolutely. Well, what lies, what lies next for you down this road then? Um, what lies next to me is like b- being at Paramount for, for foreseeable future, keep going on shows, keep learning as much as I can about finance and accounting from production side. So I'm more prepared for whatever comes next, move forward. Um, have a couple films in development right now. There was a heavy period where like right as senior graduation coming out, I had a couple of films in pre-production. We had the financing there and there's actually a point where like, I told the director, I don't think we should move forward simply because there were so many examples of times where, um, I saw like, if you just rush into something, it's not perfect. I'm like, let's just conserve our resources, go back to drawing board and find like, again, the golden gem kind of thing there and like the right people to move forward. Because if you do just like rush into everything as far as you can, you know, you can just look back years later. I think it's such a good standpoint, especially for time directors, like, Find the thing that, one, matches your style, matches your story kind of thing. And something where, like, you can go out and you can sell this based off just pure passion. And, like, you resonate so much with it yourself. And I think that is, like, the best way for, like, first-time directors to go with. Um, Also, just in the future, um, The Hollywood Reporter came out with this very interesting article, (laughs) which all of my friends sent me. (laughs) Which is basically saying um, the age of the independent producer is dead. Kind of, of, the, of the what kind of producer? The independent producer. I see. Why is that? Um, essentially, one, because of how massive the studios have become. The studios are essentially taking the role over the producers. Like, you can say, oh, Kevin Feige is a producer. He's a producer, but he's also the president of a company. He is, like, running all these people. He's running a development team. He's running a production team. He's running a post team. Moving forward there. And all these other people is, like, their job is, like, they find great IP... And then they have a whole machine in place and all the financing move forward too, kind of thing. And that's really how you can build your franchises moving forward. And the biggest example right now is showrunners. And to the public eye, showrunners mostly just a writer, but really they are the producer in that sense. Yeah, they're and kind of the kings. <laughs> yeah, they really are the kings there. And in that sense, it's like you need to write too in order to do that. Same thing with actors now. A bunch of actors are becoming producers. Right. Because Michael they see B. Jordan. Like, yeah. Um, Brad Pitt with Plan B, but um, there it's like, they just see like, oh, you know, we want control, but we also have that special uniqueness that gives us power too. So like, I've been writing like crazy myself too. One, because I'm in high school, I want to be a novelist, honestly. Really? (laughs) Because I was so shy. I was just like escaping into writing, which was a big part of it too. But now it's like, I just really want to write because one, I have a bunch of creative people I can fall back on for advice moving forward and also sprinkle into no great bunch of great directors but it then it also comes back to the producer lifestyle like i want to be there from beginning to end and really like just like writing like fade in on a script that is beginning so that's more of the path i'm leaning toward now just one writing for fun but also i'm writing super small stuff i know i can produce with my resources moving forward too so that's like that that's my big advice too to people who want to be producers like you, that's great, but also you just need to like find the other thing. Act, direct, produce, edit, just like anything that adds value to you and you bring to the table is your biggest asset too. I Be- see. Because producing is just like relying on other people. 
So you also need to bring something to the table too, then in this like competitive market. Definitely. So, so that's, so what you're saying is in order to stand out to, to bring something new to the table as a producer, there needs to be that extra uh, talent that you also uh, bring along with it. That that's attached with it. Mm -hmm. The the Mike Downing package. Yeah. (laughs) Which for you is writing. Package is like a barely poorly put together box cut. Oh, I wouldn't sell yourself short like that. It's like the people who like, you give the package to, I think. Yeah. It's the biggest way. Okay. I see. So in, in this case, for uh, me being the director, writer, and the podcast mm-hmm. is part of my package is what you're saying. Yeah. Like one, to, from your standpoint, it's your, say this wasn't nonfiction. Say this was fiction. Okay. So one, you're writing the IP. Mm-hmm. Two, you have complete creative control over how it's produced as the director. Correct. Three, as the producer, you know what resources you have to create this so you can allocate it properly. Uh-huh. Um, four... Because you're also distributing it, you choose which audience members you want to target. And five, because you're also marketing it, you're deciding how much of a reach this gets kind of thing. So then if anyone comes to you, you can choose which of those five avenues you want to use. So now are you creative to like give people advice as a consultant, as like a director, be like, oh, I love your idea. Here's how you should do it. Or from my point, I have a product, Last Whistle that I want to be marketed. So I come to you because you have an audience and it works that way. So it's that whole machine there. You essentially need to become a machine, which you're doing a great job of. Thank you. So yeah, so yeah, so essentially that's how it comes to. So that's one of the great things about being producers. So it's ambiguous is you just need to keep building up all those tool sets there and up there. So that way then when the opportunity comes, you're prepared to launch it in any way. Sure, what's, the, what's your personal baby? that we should start getting excited about way before you even produced it that you haven't talked about yet. Um, uh, I've written a very small Alaska feature kind of thing, super personal, okay. um, involves like both the opioid epidemic and like Alaska politics kind of thing. Whoa, all, okay. all, very heavy stuff. Yeah. So that is something I'll probably, I would work on for the next 10 years until I think I got it right. Really? But kind of thing. Yeah. Just because like, it would be such a personal story. I would want to share my hometown. I might even want to direct it, but it's just something I would want to like completely just focus on, get right. Um, me and my career partner, Nick Benjamin, we just finished writing our first pilot, which we're super psyched about. We Muck, can't really, right? yeah, yeah, Muck. I can't really share too many details about that, but nah, it, we'll refrain. Su- su- yeah, we're like totally Game of Thrones meets Boardwalk Empire meets Mad Men. Like <laughs> we're, we're shooting for the stars and we love it. We're, we're super happy with everything we did there. That was a two year long process of just writing and outlining like crazy. And really? we're in love. It was like, yeah, that was a big thing. Um, also, Colin West is very much one of my career partners. I love Colin West. He's yeah, a great guy. Colin West is good. You should have him on. He, he'd be a great person. I would love to get Colin um, West. Yeah. Colin West, if you're listening, this is an invitation, bro. We'd love to have you. Yeah. Um, another shout out to Caroline Friend, very talented director. She was the director and writer for the short Under Darkness, which um, premiered at Sundance, Telluride, and was nominated for Student Academy Award. Kind of thing there. So I tried to hang out with her as much as I can, just like latch onto her stardom before she goes into that <laughs> atmosphere. But yeah, all those people love working with them. All have projects juggling around with them too. So yeah, dude, that's great. Uh, no, just keep keep doing what you're doing, man. I I, I can't wait to see where you're going because there's. I, I've said this to a few people now. There's a reason why I brought you on the show. The show, in its nature, is supposed to act as a way for me to predict 
who I believe will be successful, if not famous. And I believe that you're here for a reason, you know? This is just to start. This is just one uh, baby step. But also, there's, you've already taken so many steps before this. And you're going to take so many steps that are already laid in place ahead of you. You've put yourself in a place to have options. But I've also met a whole series of people who don't have as many options. And what is what is a way... What is something that, that someone, the average person can do to acquire more options in their life? The biggest thing is get a mentor. Just like, that's something I missed out. If I could go back to freshman at USC, I would have cleaned on to every single, like, big name who came through those doors and would just, like, beg them for mentors. I would have had, like, 50 mentors kind of thing. Like, I love my mentor right now, Rebecca Doyle. Um, but the biggest thing is, like, that is the best way. So it's like, one, you can get daily advice, build a relationship with someone who may be able to, like, promote you up in certain ways. But that is it. Like, if you don't have any doors open, just, like, prove to someone you're willing to work and, like, you have that uniqueness that can get you far. And then let someone else, like, be, like, your, like, shining knight to get you through there. And also, like, you work up and become the shining knight, too. I couldn't agree more. I, I think if I were to go back and do it again, I would seek out a mentor. As a matter of fact, just from this conversation alone, I'm going to start seeking that a lot more closely. Uh, yeah, I love that advice. I think that's that's pretty crucial. Because, uh, by the way, this whole entire podcast, my whole entire point that I'm in in my career, the, re- the reason why at the beginning intro of this podcast it says it's an up-and-coming podcast about the up-and-coming is because I'm still learning too. There's so much to learn with, with this process, not just with the podcast, but me being as a filmmaker, you know? And that's just so exciting to me. If I wasn't learning, I wouldn't be interested. Exactly. You, you, this is, this is going to sound weird, speaking of packages that make us all unique. You want to know what a weird talent of mine is that I've always been very good at? I feel like you're going to break out juggling, but go on. Uh, <laughs> well, it's juggling. No, yeah. I'm kidding. No, it's um, uh, being a masseuse. Seriously, I, I, I actually really... Uh, no, I'm not laughing. It's just very unexpected. I know. I, I, I'm great with my hands. Did you and... watch YouTube videos? or No, I, 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 I would go to uh, I'd go to a massage every now and then just for my own personal therapy, and I would feel how they were uh, touching my back and my body, and I understood just from the way their hands are moving what they were doing and how they were doing it. I don't know the anatomy of the human body, but I understood that if you touched me right there, there was a pressure point, and then I would then replicate that and practice it on a friend who asked me for a massage. So uh, I learned how to give massages, essentially. I'm really good at it. And if I went to a school, I'm sure I'd breeze by it with an A. But you know, and people have told me, by the way, that you should be a masseuse. The reason why I will never be a masseuse, though. Uh, can you guess why I'll never be a masseuse? No. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why is because it'd be too easy. Okay. Yeah. I'd be too good at it. I just know I would. That's why I want to be a director and a filmmaker, because I'm not great at it yet. But the key word is yet. No, you know? no, uh, I 100% agree. Like, I think the best way to grow as a person and find fulfillment is work on something challenging, but something you're passionate about. Yeah. So that way, like, you can keep growing, and every time you grow, you get that level of satisfaction kick. The same goes for looking for jobs, too. I I think one one major thing that I've been kind of examining is the fact that uh, certain jobs are very easy to acquire, and just because they're going to accept you doesn't mean you should say yes. And that's a pretty obvious uh, answer. But at the same time, it's like th- it's about raising your your quality of life. 
And if it's not challenging enough, you're just never going to get to that point that you see yourself at in 10 years. You know, I loved, I love what Matthew McConaughey said when he got his Oscar, uh, did you hear the speech about what he? Uh, uh, I listened to who, it. Who his like, hero is? No, who's his hero? His hero is himself in ten years. Oh yeah. And, and people yeah. people bashing him for being arrogant. I don't think that's arrogant. I think that's actually really beautiful. His hero is himself in ten years. Who do you see yourself as ten years in in ten years? You know, mm-hmm. I think that's pretty remarkable. So, I don't know. I mean, the person you see yourself as in ten years is someone who's producing this crazy uh, project, potentially even the showrunner of that is able to advance it but, well, uh, on the same level as Game of Thrones, as you, as you just said. And that's that's pretty remarkable. Well, that's the one thing about me personally is, like, I really don't want to see myself in a future to some degree. It's, like, one, either you completely achieve it, and that's, like, good, or you fall short. Or it's, like, you get so locked into something, you can't see another opportunity coming forward. So in my perspective, it's, like, one, I just want to meet as many people as possible. I want to just keep building my tool set as large as possible. And then whatever comes next and whatever makes me happy and grow is the direction I'll go. But you know what's funny is that there's uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I was really at the, the bottom of the barrel level of depressed. Um, just be, It was that post-college depression. Mm-hmm. I just came back from Europe. And nothing was going for me. It was really hard for me to figure out how to pick up my feet and get into gigs uh, in the freelance world of, of production and film. And I would see my friends, and they would bounce from job to job. And I was like, how are you making a career in freelance? That's crazy. Because I didn't have my name out there like they did, right? Um, one thing that got me out of my depression was reading uh, Robert Kiyosaki, hmm. uh, the business guru who yeah. writes all these different books. In fact, I actually have uh, one of his books right there that I'm in the process of reading uh, called more important than money. Yeah, I see. Um, but I read uh, business in the 21st century, and then I read rich dad poor dad. And these business concepts gave me this idea, and I wrote down this 10 year process, this 10 year long plan that I had for myself. Uh, I think at the time it was actually a little bit more specific, but uh, as I molded it and wrote a second draft of the plan, and the third draft of the plan, it became more and more uh, general. And I realized every single draft that I wrote that. Uh, the plan has to be general because uh, <laughs> you don't know what life's coming with, mm-hmm. you know? They say life's a roller coaster. Guess what? Whoever said that is the most genius person out there because there's no way to predict what's coming next. I could say that 10 years from now, I'm going to be the business owner of a small business company called uh, Mr. Thrive Media. <laughs> and uh, no saying if that's going to happen. It's my yeah. goal. It's, it's something I, I, I dream about. It actually helps me fall asleep at night is thinking about how I'm going to create Mr. Thrive into a, a brand, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And that, that, that excites me. And, but, that, but that also comes with the fact that realistically it has to be general, you know. Mm-hmm. It has to be general. And uh, at least for now, at least for now, up until you find something that, that, that real golden, golden egg laying goose you know? No, I, I, I think I might misspeak a little bit, but I 100% agree with you there. I think with me right now, my struggle is like, I know I want to do film. Like, I know, like, film, television, media is like my one set goal. And I do feel a bit okay being just the general direction and absorbing as much as I can around that one field. Like, I do think if like you're bouncing between, like, say, like, 
being a biologist or being a sailor or being a miner kind of thing. That's where it can get a bit difficult when like you're not building skills off of the other. But I do think like, especially what you just said there is like one learning business skills and one learning it in like a select field. Like those are related. And no matter what, as long as you're working toward building up and growing there, then you're set for the future there rather than just like spending your time between like different juggles that won't relate at all and just competing for your time. A hundred percent. Um, What's some advice? I know you've already given some advice, but what's some advice that you can give to future producers out there and getting started? Um, One, it's like one route is to go just complete PA and be out there attentive, working as hard as you can. Because when you are like the one working as hard, it's very obvious to people up at the top because they can see every little thing. And when like every time they look at you, they see like you're giving 110, like, yes, um, to reading as many producing books as you can. And then also just like start studying little, every little area, like study development, like what makes a good story there. Don't give notes on set, but like, no, like this is what makes a good story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> especially do not give notes on set. I, I, I've given notes on set too. I've got like, Have you really? I got, I, I give a really big note on survival skills <laughs> halfway through filming, like halfway through. I'm like, we should change this whole style. I got this awful look at me <laughs> from the director. <laughs> I still think I'm right, but, like, don't do that <laughs> at all. <laughs> the note did not get taken, but, like, again, it's like, know, yeah. your, know your place, even when you're, like, that close. Yeah, know your place. That's a good, that's a good lesson, yeah. for sure. Uh, but it, a fantastic example is this one person I know named Polina, who's fantastic. Um, again, main people, she's in my BCA program. She met us at this one networking event at USC, and... Me and the other producer for Last Whistle, we were mentioning, hey, we're going to Texas this summer to go see your sister. They're like, oh, what? we're in Texas. We're like, Fort Worth. She's like, I'm from Fort Worth. I'll be there all summer. I'm like, oh, well, you know, if you're around, let us know if you want a PA or something. Then we're there. And like, she messages us, hey, I'm still in Texas. Do you need more help? And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Come on. And then we're there. And um, she noticed that <laughs> we didn't have anyone doing DIT. We had our poor DP, um, Brian Tang, who's incredible and basically ran the whole set from the camera department there he was doing dit at night and spending like two hours doing it and getting zero sleep <laughs> and then we're like yeah we just let him do it and she's like well i've taken like all these post internships and i know all this stuff about data and all this stuff and we're like okay yeah you're now dit and now you're script supervisor and then in post she's like who do you have helping you get all this other stuff down we're like no and she's like well i know this stuff can i be assistant editor we're like yeah do it that's great so yeah she worked her way up there and then from there same with survival skills we needed an assistant editor because our editor was um at work when we were doing the reshoots and we're like so i just went her like do you want to dit and be assistant editor she's like yeah so like she came on there again a thousand times great job proved herself at every method and because she did such a great job, the editor took note of that. And the editor worked at Blumhouse and then got her job at Blumhouse. Wow. So, like, literally, like, again, zero credit to me. Right. <laughs> zero, zero credit to me being a producer. But, like, she hustled from a way where, like, she knew someone. She had skills in a field where we were lacking. And she was great enough on set and great enough person where she was able to go from job, job, job. And just along the way through recommendations and proving herself in every situation landed that. So I love how spontaneous 
is how spontaneous the nature of being on a set can be because on one hand a lot of the uh the movement that happens is through word of mouth Mm -hmm. and on the other hand there's just no bureaucracy yeah that that, that's a double-edged blade of course because then nepotism comes in and and totally takes advantage of that totally Mm -hmm. but otherwise though like situations like what you just described is so neat i love those stories that's really great one thing i meant to ask about is you have a nickname I have a nickname? You told me it was the budget guy. Oh, that that was like so, something good to know, especially when you're starting out. Is like exactly like this story about Polina, who I just said is like I understood she knew so much about data transfer at every second. I'm like that's great. At USC, being a sophomore, having no production experience, the one thing I was able to pick up really hard and I could sell myself on as a business student too was I knew how to make budgets. And budgeting is one of the most vital and first steps of any production. So being a producer, you have to come on very early on. I'm like, what can I contribute to this production that will earn me my place? And like early on show, I know what I'm talking about. And also like give me like a product I can sell in a sense. So being known as the one who could just bust out budgets, do them a hundred percent for free while I was in school because I had the time and like, I'd keep messing them up too. It was just like, that was what I could do. So like when people had projects, I'm like, yep, I read the script. Here's a budget. And let's move from there. Because once in the same thing with the script right now is like anyone can just like come on and help out. But if you don't have any ownership over the project, then really there's like a strong chance you could just be pushed out the moment it's inconvenient for someone, which is super hard to hear. if like, you don't have the right connections, but like, if your name is on the script, if your name is on the budget and you're the one planning that, it's much harder to be removed from a scenario there. Because one, it's like, first, you're putting a stake of yourself in there. You're yeah. like adding your name to things and saying like, I'm invested and for this project and be forward, you need me on because I've already latched on so much. Totally. That's kind of a cynical way to describe it too, but it's also but you're just describing a way- you're describing the politics it comes yeah, with the but land. it's also a part of like adding responsibility to yourself there, where like yeah. I just need to be responsible for this aspect of it all, and just oh, the end goal is it should never be like a credit hog thing. I've myself have been definitely involved in credit hogging too, and I've regretted it too. Um, but part of it is also like you just need to be contributing, so. You know, you can give notes on a script and you shouldn't just like demand that you're a part of it either kind of thing there. And also your notes shouldn't be about nepotism. It should be like, this should be the best product. And you really should come with a strong, strong pitch saying like, I can give you notes, but these notes will save you this much money on this budget and will also make you much more appealing to distributor. So if I can come with a note that helps that much, then like, like okay yes you are vital during the development process and that's why you should be kept on well as mentioned before part of the producing experience is the learning experience and you've come a long way and you have a longer way to go after this so so. (laughs) uh kudos to you man you got a lot coming for you if someone listening to this right now wanted to produce something and wanted to contact you what is the best way to reach out to you um um <laughs> I've gotten some really weird people once before. Uh, I'll say this one story just because I don't know how this person got my email, but some just random agent in New York and is like, hey, I have an actor who lives in New York 
but they're in LA for a week. Can they talk to you? I was going to say yes, but at the same time, I was like, how did this person get my email? <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I would say best way is to add me on Instagram, honestly, and then send me a DM, I think, just because that's probably better. Sure thing. Okay, my, my, my Instagram is at Mike underscore Orion, O-R-I-O-N. All that information will be displayed in the description below. And finally, Mike, the question that I ask everybody on this podcast what will you be famous for? I mean, I want to say like curing cancer, but I think that's very much less likely than um, I would say I would love to be the I want to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. I want to be the producer up there with the award and have like the whole crew and everyone behind me. And just that's like the one moment where I'll be like, hey, you know, we made this whole project and I helped as much as I can in every aspect. And now we're all on stage in front of the whole world celebrating it. And, like, I know that's a big dream. And, I don't know, that's be something I want to shoot for. Something tells me that that dream is highly attainable. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, it's a table for some, but we'll, we'll figure it all out. You'll figure it out <laughs> yeah. indeed. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Mike Downing. His film, The Last Whistle, is coming out on October 26th on Netflix. Stay tuned. Check it out. It's a really amazing film. Directed and written by the very talented Rob Smith. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Oh, wow. What a great episode. This production took time, energy, and money to produce. To support the growing business of this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash mrthrive to become a thriver today. That is patreon.com slash mrthrive. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.